0: let me tell you a story about a bandit named Vasquez. Tiburcio Vasquez was a rock star. He had everything that a bandit needs to become a folk hero. He was handsome and charismatic, a swashbuckler who carried an air of daring and danger, but he could plausibly, though almost certainly falsely, claim that he'd never taken a life. He could, and did, claimed to be a rebel fighting for the oppressed. The image doesn't hold up to much scrutiny, but since when has that mattered? People wanted to believe it. Still do, in fact. His bandit hideouts became famous, especially the fantastical landscape of Vasquez Rocks in the desert 40 miles north of Los Angeles. He was an excellent horseman and skilled with weapons, and those weapons are collector's items for outlaw and western history enthusiasts. He played the guitar and sang and wrote romantic poetry. Women loved him and he loved them excessively. His insatiable impulse to bed virtually every woman he ran across would lead to discord in his bandit band and ultimately to his downfall. You might think a fellow would learn his lesson after he bedded the wife of one of his compañeros and was sorely wounded in the fight that ensued, but of course he didn't. He seduced his own niece and knocked her up, while simultaneously carrying on other affairs and cavorting with a famous Los Angeles prostitute. And those antics led directly to his capture and ultimate hanging. It's quite a tale, and the climax came in Los Angeles in 1874. Tibercio Vasquez came from pioneering stock. His grandfather trekked north out of Mexico in Juan Batista de Anza's expedition to settle Alta California. The family was not among the aristocratic class of Californios, but they were solid citizens of the village of Monterey California. Tibercio's uncle owned a ranch where the young Californio learned to ride and rope and work livestock. Vasquez was bilingual, and he could read and write well. Well enough to compose Romantic poetry. Tiburcio was a young man of high spirits and hot passions, and that can lead to trouble. Especially if the young man falls in with the wrong crowd, which Tiburcio did. He took up the company of a local bandito named Anastasio Garcia. In 1854, Garcia got into a scrap at a fandango in Monterey. Gunplay ensued, and a lawman, Constable William Hardmount, was shot and killed. Some say that it was Tibercio who shot him, but that seems unlikely, and he was never charged with the killing. But now he was on the outlaw trail. In later years, Vasquez would paint a gloss of ethnic patriotism over his actions. In an interview with the Los Angeles Daily Star after his capture, Vasquez recalled... Americans, then beginning to become numerous, would force themselves and shove the native-born men aside, monopolizing the dance and the women. A spirit of hatred and revenge took possession of me. That's some classic victim of life circumstances. I was forced into a life of crime rationalization, but it's probably at least partially true. Given his proclivities as a ladies' man, Vasquez would certainly have bridled and interlopers horning in on his action, and being subordinated to the Americans scalded many a Californio's pride. Vasquez parted ways with Garcia, who really was a killer. The bandito would swing for at least six murders at the hands of a lynch mob, which was a familiar story in the 1850s in California. Tiburcio probably was a killer. He certainly was involved in the violent deaths of, of several people. Uh, historian John Balsenecker puts the count at nine. But uh, he, he never was bloodthirsty in the sense that, uh, that some of the banditos of the era were. And uh, it seems that, that he left Garcia's company because he wasn't a killer by nature. But Tiburcio did get popped for horse theft, and he did a couple of of stretches in the San Quentin pen where he was involved in violent prison breaks that cost the lives of 20 or so convicts. Vasquez got shot in one of those attempted prison breaks, but he survived and recovered. He got out in 1863, formed a wrestling gang in Sonoma County, north of San Francisco, got popped again, and this time he towed the line in San Quentin until his release in 1870. After that, he decided that he'd go straight. Yeah, no, he, he didn't. Of course he didn't. He recruited another gang and went on a spree of armed robberies of stagecoaches, stores, ranchos, and the occasional stray traveler. We're not talking about meticulously planned heists by an elite outfit like Neil Macaulay's crew in the movie Heat. This was just opportunistic stealing, and mostly from hard-working folks. Tibercio did seem to prefer to steal from Anglos, but he was not averse to stealing from the occasional California or, or Mexican. After a robbery in Firebaugh in the Central Valley of California, the gang split up, and Tibercio headed south to Elizabeth Lake in northwestern Los Angeles County to hide out with his brother Francisco, who everybody called Chico. Chico had an 18-year-old daughter named Felicita, and, yep, Tibercio seduced her. Whether she knew he was her uncle or not is an open question, probably not. But everyone else in the small world of the Californios sure did, and when Tibercio rode north again, leaving her pregnant, the community thought he'd stepped way out of line, particularly Chico, who swore he'd kill him on sight. When he got the chance, though, he couldn't do it. And we'll come back to that. The robbery that marked the beginning of the end for Vasquez took place on August 26, 1873, in a small village known as Tres Pinos, inland from Monterey Bay. Vasquez and his gang rode into this tiny bird to rob the general store. Again, not not a uh, major target and not a sophisticated heist. Confused civilians, in some cases, couldn't hear and in another case couldn't understand orders to lay down and be hogtied, and three innocent people ended up getting shot and killed. Vasquez denied personally killing anyone, but testimony indicates that he shot two of them, one of them a hotelier who he shot through a door. The robbery and the killings sparked outrage across the state, and the governor activated Sheriff Harry Morse, who was one of the toughest lawmen and and one of the most skilled manhunters in California. The Vasquez gang fled south towards Los Angeles, and Morse pursued them. Los Angeles was actually a pretty smart play for the gang. The mountains and the deserts around the the Los Angeles basin were, uh, and, and still are, very rugged terrain, a good place for hiding out, Good for eluding pursuit. One spot in the desert north of the city is known today as Vasquez Rocks, because the gang used the sandstone formations as a fortress hideout. I've posted pictures of Vasquez Rocks on uh, Frontier Partisans, accompanying the post announcing this podcast, and you'll you'll recognize them, because the landscape there is so alien-looking that it's been used a whole bunch of times in movies and TV shows to represent another planet. Another benefit of being in Los Angeles was that at least a large portion of the California community, especially the, the poorer classes, were inclined to help a bandit like Vasquez or at least not turn him in if they knew where he was. Tubercio could go to Fandango's in Sonoratown in Los Angeles and drink and dance and chase the ladies without too much risk. And that was important to him, to Vasquez was a very social man. The gang's main hideout in Los Angeles was an adobe home of Greek George Caralambo, a former U.S. Army Camel Corps driver who had married into the huge Lopez family, a Ranchero clan of considerable note in California. Greek George's place was in what we now call West Hollywood, not far from the Sunset Strip. Then it was pretty isolated and with a good field of view southward toward Los Angeles. Sometimes the gang stayed inside this house, which was quite small, but mostly they camped in the trees a little ways away. Remember Greek George's Lopez connections because they're going to be important. Now, by this time, young Felicita, Tibercio's niece, had given birth to her uncle Tibercio's child, a son, and Felicita's mother, Maria Villa, was absolutely furious about it. That meant railing about Tibercio's caddish ways to her extended family, the Lopez clan. Her cousin, Jose Lopez, recounted what happened when Tibercio visited his brother, Chico. Tiburcio got down on his knees and begged Francisco's forgiveness. He told Francisco that he knew that he had brought disgrace on him and had ruined his family. He took out his revolver and, holding it by the muzzle, offered it to Francisco, telling him, There is an $8,000 reward for me. Someone is going to collect it. You kill me and get the reward to use in raising my child. Francisco was overcome. He had sworn to kill Tiburcio, But when the opportunity presented itself, he could not do it. Finally, he pointed into the distance and told Tibercio to go and never to come near him again, saying that he would care for the child himself. Tibercio left. While hiding out at Greek George's place, Vasquez recruited an 18-year-old sheepherder, a kid who was starstruck by the famous bandito to provide intel on likely targets in the Los Angeles area. The young man told Vasquez about an Italian sheepman named Alessandro Rapetto who lived on a ranch about 7 miles northeast of downtown Los Angeles in what's now Monterey Park. According to the kid, the sheepman had about $10,000 on hand, which would have been a major haul for the Vasquez gang. The intel was not so good. Vasquez approached Repetto's house on the hill overlooking the ranch, claiming to be a sheep shearer in, in search of work, but Repetto wasn't buying it. He took one look at Vasquez's fine clothes and his soft, uncalloused hands and called bullshit. He knew he was dealing with a bandito. Repetto called him out on his ruse, and Vasquez admitted that he was a robber. And he told Rapetto that he was here for the $10,000 that he knew was on the ranch. He had Repetto lashed to a tree and threatened to hang him unless he handed over the loot. But ranching in these modern times had grown considerably more sophisticated than Vasquez was accustomed to. Rapetto didn't keep his money at the ranch house. It was deposited at the Temple and Workman Bank in downtown Los Angeles. Rapetto offered to write a check and send his nephew to the bank to get the cash. That's better than hanging. How Vasquez thought this could play out well is hard to figure. He must have really, really wanted that $10,000. Rapetto's poor nephew was completely freaked out, convinced his uncle was going to be murdered. He was so nervous when he got to the bank that the banker, who was a very kind-hearted fellow named Francis Temple, grew suspicious and he contacted Sheriff Billy Rowland. Questioned about what was going on, the nephew broke down and he revealed the whole story and the sheriff immediately started putting together a posse to ride out and capture Vasquez. This freaked the nephew out even more because he knew that if a posse showed up, Rapeto would certainly be killed. So this tugged at Temple's heartstrings, and he gave the kid $500 in gold, and the kid took off, cutting through city lots and riding like the wind to get ahead of the posse, which he did. And he got back to his uncle's sheep ranch and threw the gold down in front of Vasquez just as a bandit lookout spotted the posse's dust coming their way. Vasquez grabbed the gold and gave the order to mount up, and the gang sprinted north toward what is today Pasadena. And Rapeto survived. With the sheriff's posse in hot pursuit, Vasquez and his men rode through Arroyo Seco, brazenly stopping and robbing some travelers in the vicinity of of today's Rose Bowl. They cut west then through the San Gabriel mountains and This is very rugged terrain that I used to run around in in my youth. And it was perfect terrain for setting up an ambush, which some of Vasquez's men wanted to do. And Vasquez vetoed the idea. He was a bandito and he might have been a desperado, but he just wasn't pathologically bloodthirsty. And he knew that cutting down a sheriff's posse would bring every lawman in the state down on him and his gang. So they escaped and evaded through the the canyons and barrancas, and rode into the San Fernando Valley, where Tiburcio stayed for a bit at Mission San Fernando, which was now the home of the legendary California fighting man and bandit hunter Andres Pico, who you may remember from the podcast on the 1857 Barton killing where Pico had some bandits hanged and their their ears cut off. Pico certainly knew who Vasquez was, but for some reason this was one bandit whose ears would never adorn his saddle. Both Sheriff Morris and Sheriff Rowland missed catching the bandit, delayed by taking bad routes that led them into rough country and dead ends. Recriminations flew, and the press took a bite out of law enforcement's ass. Vasquez slipped away and back to Greek George's place. Remember when I said that Greek George's Lopez connections were going to be important? Well, here's where they come into play, setting up the endgame for Tibercio Vasquez. Greek George was married to Cornelia Lopez, who was kin to Felicita's outraged mother. Cornelia's sister, Modesta, lived with her and Greek George. Yep, you're right. Vasquez seduced her. Modesta was herself most displeased when she learned that Felicita had borne Vasquez's child. She was even more upset when the newspapers reported that Tibercio had been seen visiting a legendary Sonora town prostitute called La Coneja, which means the rabbit which conjures some idea of her proclivities. Hell hath no fury, and so forth. We can imagine what things must have been like for Greek George, with both of the women in his household dangerously angry at the bandito who was hiding out on their property. At some point, it must have seemed that the all-too-real wrath of scorned and outraged women was worse than the potential wrath of a bandito betrayed. Somebody, certainly a Lopez, tipped off Sheriff Morse that Vasquez and his gang were hiding out at Greek George's place. Morse dutifully informed Sheriff Rowland, who downplayed the intelligence. Morse, who was way out of his jurisdiction and frustrated at the inability to nail his quarry, left Los Angeles and headed back north. And Sheriff Rowland immediately put Greek George's little adobe abode under surveillance. It was a dick move. However, the surveillance did indicate that there was a very high probability that the Vasquez gang was indeed holed up at the property. The family wasn't going to risk being murdered for some paltry sum, but for the right price, lucky for Sheriff Rowland, the governor of California, up the reward on offer for Tibercio Vasquez to $8,000. And so Roland relayed to Greek George that he could, in fact, take a share of $8,000 for information leading to the capture of Tibercio Vasquez, and Greek George made a deal. He arranged to be gone from his home on May 14, 1874, when he knew that Tiburcio Vasquez and members of his gang would be there. Sheriff Rowland very discreetly put together a posse, disguising their gathering and their route out of downtown Los Angeles, so that none of Vasquez's informants could pick up on the action. They headed out in the fog of early morning, about 2 a.m., and among them was Detective Emil Harris, who left a very detailed account of how it all went down. Harris described the posse moving very slowly and carefully around local farms so that that they wouldn't cause dogs to bark, and establishing themselves on the hills overlooking Greek George's place. And through the fog, one of the posse members spotted a horse that they were pretty sure belonged to one of Vasquez's lieutenants named Chavez. The lawmen also commandeered a wagon driven by a couple of young Mexican boys. In the meantime, the fog had lifted materially, and a man was seen to leave the Greek George house on a gray horse. Thinking it might be Chavez, Mitchell and Smith gave chase, while Johnston and Bryant returned to our camp and sent word for me to come immediately as we were about to start. Johnston, Rogers, Hartley, Beers, and myself, besides the younger of the two Mexican boys, then lay down in the bed of the wagon at Johnston's suggestion, while Bryant, who was rather dark and resembled a Mexican at a distance, got up on the seat with the driver to prevent any treachery. We were completely concealed from view by the sideboards of the wagon and were as closely packed as sardines, The driver was ordered to proceed to a point near Greek George's house and not to attempt to betray our presence in any manner, either by word or sign, under penalty of death. Johnston, Bryant, Rogers, Hartley, and Beers were armed with double-barreled muzzle-loading shotguns loaded with buckshot while I had an old-style 16-shot Henry rifle. All of us carried revolvers in addition, powder and ball of the Colt's Navy pattern, When within 100 yards of the house, we stopped the wagon and all jumped out and threw ourselves face downwards on the ground, while the wagon turned and was driven rapidly back in the direction of Nichols Canyon. As soon as we saw the coast was clear, we arose in a body and made a dash for the house. My intention was to kill Vasquez's horse in the event of his coming out and trying to escape in that way. The house was constructed in the form of an L. I ran to the northeast corner of the structure, followed by Johnston, Bryant, and Rogers, while Hartley and Beers took up a position in a mustard patch on the southwest side of the building. I looked through an open door into the living room and beheld a young woman of rather comely appearance with some plates in her arms in the act of waiting upon a man seated at the table who was in his shirt sleeves and wore overalls. Both had their backs toward me. I turned and beckoned our men to close in. The woman's attention seemed to have been attracted in some way, and she made haste to close the door, but I rushed up and thrust my gun between it and the sill and forced it open. As I entered the room, the man had arisen hurriedly and made a break for a small window, and was partially through when I raised my rifle quickly, without taking deliberate aim, and fired. The ball struck him in the fleshy part of his left arm underneath, entered his body immediately over his heart, ran around under the skin, and came out at his right breast. "'making a superficial wound. "'I did not know this at the time, however, as he bled profusely. "'He had plunged through the window, "'and I turned and hurried around the house to head him off, "'when I saw Johnston, Bryant, and Rogers outside, "'and one of them, either Johnston or Bryant, "'fired at him as he was making for the horse. "'At this juncture, Hartley also fired upon him at close range "'with both barrels of his gun.' But when captured, only two buckshot were found to have struck him, one having lodged in the back of his head and the other in his right arm. I thereupon leveled my rifle at him. When he turned and threw up his hands, exclaiming, Don't shoot! I give up! When I reached him, he was covered with blood, and I took him by the arm and led him toward an enclosure, at the same time asking him why he ran. He replied that he was afraid we wanted to kill everybody in sight. At that time, none of us knew it was Vasquez, but I told him we were hunting for criminals, and the fact of his trying to get away had led us to assume that he was some guilty party. Upon being asked his name, he replied, Alejandro Martinez. I had in my possession a photograph taken of Vasquez when he was about 25 years of age. Upon referring to it, I immediately saw the resemblance and said, Yes, Alejandro Martinez, sometimes, and sometimes something else. "'Oh, no,' was his answer. "'I came here to shear sheep.' By this time, we had reached the enclosure where Johnston, Bryant, and Rogers were, and I said, "'Boys, I think we have got the chief.' I told him to sit down in the enclosure until the whole of us were together, when Beers was placed over him as a guard, while the rest of us returned to search the house, as we had been led to believe from our information that he would be accompanied by four others comprising his entire gang." Johnston, Hartley, and Rogers stood guard outside while I proceeded to investigate matters on the inside of the house. At this time, a young Mexican emerged with an infant in his arms, followed by the Mexican woman whom we had first observed, and she implored us not to kill the man. We assured her that it was not our intention to harm anybody if we could avoid it and endeavored in other ways to calm her fears, whereupon she took the baby from him and we handcuffed him to a post, telling Beers to keep a close watch upon both prisoners. We then continued our search, and by the side of the chair at the table was found a long-bladed bowie knife sticking in the floor. The wife of Greek George had only recently been confined, and, and underneath her bed we resurrected a vest, in one of the pockets of which was a stopwatch, which I at once recognized as having been taken from Charlie Miles in the Arroyo Seco affair. In the room from whence the man had come with the baby, we found six revolvers, two Winchester rifles of the model of 1873, then considered the best weapon made, and a Spencer 7 shooter, besides another dangerous looking knife and some saddles and bridles, etc. We afterwards found out that Creek George's premises were one of the regular headquarters for the gang. Upon searching Vasquez, we found a silver watch chain belonging to John Osborne, which was likewise one of the proceeds of the Miles holdup in the Arroyo Seco. Then I said, Now I am certain we've got the chief. Your name is Tiburcio Vasquez. For a moment he hesitated, but finally made a clean breast of it in the following language. Yes, once I was a gentleman, but now I am guilty. I then inquired, are you hurt very badly? Yes, was his reply. I think I am. Do you think you will die? Yes, I think I shall. At our suggestion, the young woman brought a basin of water and we dressed his wounds as well as possible under the circumstances. Then I inquired if he wished to make any statement in view of his probable death, and he said, Who is your captain? I referred him to Undersheriff Johnston and he requested the latter to bring a small memorandum book from one of the pockets of his coat. I got the book, and upon opening it, found clippings from the Los Angeles papers of the day previous, giving detailed accounts of our movements. I handed it to Johnston, and Vasquez continued, I have two children living in Monterey, although I am not married. We then adjourned to Judge Thompson's place nearby and procured an old spring wagon, and with two mules for a team, started to town with our prisoners. In the meantime, we had secured our saddle horses from Knowlton's, which we all mounted except Hartley, who rode Vasquez's horse, and ranged ourselves upon either side of the wagon. Before starting, however, I took a flask of whiskey from my saddlebags and offered Vasquez a drink. He responded, I like to drink with brave men, and you are all brave like myself. About three miles from town, Mitchell and Smith overtook us with their captive, who afterward proved to be some innocent party, and placed him in the charge of our posse. Mitchell then rode on ahead to apprise Sheriff Rowland of the capture, and the news spread like wildfire, so that when we arrived at First and Spring Streets, which was then the outskirts of the business portion of Los Angeles, we were met by an immense concourse of people, rendering it necessary for some of us to ride on ahead and clear a pathway for the vehicle. We reached the county jail between 4 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It was then located on North Spring Street. The city council was in session, but it adjourned in a very undignified way, and all the city fathers came piling through the windows to get a glimpse of the famous bandit. Sheriff Rowland was in waiting with a corps of physicians, and Vasquez's wounds were attended to at once. Vasquez spent nine days in the Los Angeles County Jail. In the bad old days of the 1850s, he might have been hauled out and lynched, although it has to be said that lynch mobs usually reserve that treatment for bloodier men than Tiburcio Vasquez. In any case, the mobs that gathered around the jail just wanted to see the celebrity bandit, and the press wanted interviews. Extradited to Northern California to face trial over the Tres Pinos robbery and killings, the circus continued. One estimate has it that 3,000 people came out to see Vasquez in jail. Convicted and sentenced to hang, Vasquez made a definite effort to die game. He admitted to a life of crime, though he always denied being a murderer. He smoked cigars calmly, wrote poetry, and posed for a number of photographs and expressed admiration for the coffin that had been custom-built for his eternal sleep. He calmly met the hangman in San Jose on March 19, 1875. He was 39 years old. For a whole bunch of reasons, bandits and highwaymen and pirates often end up being romantic figures. Tiburcio Vasquez is no exception. Indeed, he is still held in high regard in some quarters high enough that a health center and a high school in California are named after him. Does he deserve that status? I'll let John Bossenecker, who wrote the definitive account of Vasquez's life, have the last word on that. In the end, Tiburcio Vasquez, like Jesse James, Billy the Kid, Butch Cassidy, and other outlaw folk heroes, We'll forever ride through our collective imaginations as the laughing, romantic bandito, seducing young women, robbing the Anglos, outwitting sheriffs, and escaping on horseback into the mountains. While a portion of his power and potency lies in that mythical image, the real Vasquez made an indelible mark on his world. In an era when most Hispanics were largely disenfranchised, often deprived of basic civil rights, and able to obtain only the most menial labor, rightly or wrongly, he came to symbolize their struggle for social justice. When people are oppressed, they will grasp at anything that gives them hope. Californios and Mexicans needed a man they could hold up as an avenger, who acted out their collective desire to resist a society that had marginalized them. In death, his legend grew even larger, And to many Hispanic Americans, Tiburcio Vasquez remains a powerful symbol of their ongoing struggle for ethnic, social, political, and economic equality. So, was he a Robin Hood who stole from the rich and gave to the poor? A great revolutionary? A guerrilla? A freedom fighter battling to protect the rights of America's Spanish-speaking people? Of course not. But generations of Hispanics have believed he was, and that is what makes him significant. For in the microcosm of his turbulent life can be seen the larger effects of racism, intolerance, and social injustice that plague our nation to this day. That is the lesson and legacy of Tiburcio Vasquez, a corrido of dust and dreams. It seems fitting to end our series, Once Upon a Time in Los Angeles, with a corrido of dust and dreams. I have greatly enjoyed exploring the frontier history of the land of my youth, and we may return back this way again, because there are still many stories to be told about Frontier Los Angeles and Frontier California at large. Stories that are, are worth the telling. But for now, we're going to bid adieu to the city of angels and head back to the other side of the continent and back a good 150 years to, uh, actually 150 years and and more, to frontier New England and uh, explore the dark forest pathways of Puritan New England and King Philip's War and King William's War and Queen Anne's War that followed in a period of a really horrific conflict that set a template for frontier conflicts that would follow it, it created a, a psychology in Americans that would play out over and over again in similar patterns across the continent so uh, I want to thank our patrons who make all of this exploration possible. That's Rick Schwertfager, David Rolson, Paul McNamee, Matthew Free Live Free, Jerry Nunnally, Alan Godseff, Bob Dice, Chaz Clifton, Wade McKnight, Mike McIver, Harry Kaiser, and Ash. If you want to join this Frontier Partisan company and uh, throw down some clues in support of the podcast and the Frontier Partisan's blog, a link to the Patreon page is with the show notes for this episode. So thanks to the patrons for their support. Thank all of you for listening and we'll see you down the trail.